This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 19. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find someone, some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked, has asked him third, the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Um, if you've got a Bible, you might want to get it open at John chapter 21. Um, if you're at home, uh, now's a good chance to press pause if you need to. But I want to tell you a story, first of all, a story that I read 
um, on Premier Radios or Premier Magazine. Some of you may get the Premier Magazine. Um, we have a radio station and a magazine, so there we are. Um, but it's a story of a woman who became a Christian who was formerly a Muslim. And I want to read you the story of how she came to find Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord and Savior of all. So this is um, what she writes. So um, I hope you stay with me. It says, There is a significant cost for Muslims who follow Christ. And the church in the Western world has yet to learn how to manage this pastorally or in terms of discipleship. One of the costs for a Muslim following Christ is either temporary or permanent dislocation from their biological family and also their community. She writes, I grew up in a small holding in South Asia where my family were wealthy landowners. Schooling was a priority for my family. Though I was raised a Muslim, attending the Muslim equivalent of catechism classes, the literature I read was incomprehensible, as it was in classic Arabic, the language of Islam. Even though Jesus is acknowledged as a prophet and Mary thought to be God's servant in Islam, nothing of this was ever mentioned to me. In fact, I didn't even hear the name Jesus until I arrived in the UK later. I arrived in the UK as a child, knowing only two words in English, yes and no. I remember putting my hand up in class, despite not understanding what the teacher was asking, eating school dinners with meat that was not halal unknowingly, and wanting to change the color of my skin to fit in. While at primary school, I developed a passion for reading and found myself drawn to the illustrated children's Bible stories in the school library. The story of Daniel in the lion's den had a profound effect on me. Up until reading that story, I had worshipped a God that did not appear to reciprocate a relationship with his creation. But then Daniel prayed. God dispatched angels to shut the mouths of lions. That was the God that I wanted to know, the God that answered prayers. At university, I met a Jewish lady called Sheena. I noticed that there was a serenity that surrounded her, and she happened to take an interest in my own culture and well-being. In fact, it was Sheena who gave me my first NIV Bible, and 32 years on, it still has pride of place in my handbag. Sheena was a Jewish Christian, and she witnessed to me for seven years. She would pray in my presence, yet I could not comprehend a God that I could not see. Then one night, everything changed. The living God appeared to me. Due to a traumatic situation in my life, I was visiting my family and went up to my old bedroom. I knelt beside my bed and I asked, Jesus, I don't know who you are or whether you are real at all, but I need that peace that I get every time Sheena prays for me. I need it desperately right now. At that moment, God came to me and cradled me like a parent to a child and deep spoke to deep. It wasn't a verbal conversation, but it was an assurance that God was attending to this trauma. There was a light in the room like a ball of love After that experience, I left the room completely transformed. My friends could see that there was a change. I had become a more confident woman because I had truly met my maker. It's an amazing story, and I love it when people share those stories with us as Christians because it reminds us that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the hope for all peoples, no matter where they are or where they're born. And that story sums up the hope that we have as Christians, that actually once we encounter the risen Lord Jesus, the living Lord Jesus, our lives can be dramatically transformed. And we're doing our series of sort of post-resurrection experiences. Easter Sunday seems a long time ago now. But Jesus, for 40 days, appeared to his disciples, one after the other, sometimes in large groups, sometimes very personally. 
But each time these people met the risen Lord Jesus, they encountered him, and they were never the same since. And that is a story of every Christian conversion for the last 2,000 years, isn't it? That we encounter the risen Lord Jesus. Not an idea or a philosophy or religion. We don't care about any of that stuff. But we encounter Jesus Christ properly, and he transforms us when he takes our sin and remakes us in his image. And so today we're looking at the story of seven disciples by the shore of Lake Tiberias. And we're looking at the emotion of feeling resigned or resignation. We're taking an emotion every week. So the story that Francis just read to us is possibly around two weeks after Easter Sunday. Um, They've gone home, they've gone back up to Galilee, and nothing really exciting has happened for the last couple of days. They're a bit lost. And so they go fishing, and then they see this strange man on the shore who calls out to them to fish the other side of their boat, and they pull in that haul of 153 fish. And then they realize it's Jesus. He feeds them, not with their fish, you know, but with his fish. Uh, I think that's key. Everything we have from God is from him and not from us. And then he recommissions them, and he restores Peter. But I wonder if you've picked up the tone change from last week. If you were here last week, or if maybe you're watching online in John chapter 20, we had that story of the disciples in the upper room and how Jesus was among them and said, peace be with you. And then Thomas doubted, and then eight days later he sees, he falls on his knees and he shouts, my Lord and my God. And how chapter 20 ends really with a bang. And then John writes to every single one of us to tell us that everything in his gospel is enough, all you need for salvation. And then you get to chapter 21, and it's kind of so exciting in chapter 20. But in chapter 21, it's almost a bit down. It's like, why have you, surely chapter 20 is where the story should end. And many people believe, many people have deduced because of this tone change, that the real gospel ended at the end of chapter 20. And then this is like Appendix A. It was stuck on later to give you a kind of what happened next. I personally don't agree with that. I think this is not an appendix, chapter 21, but a very important lesson about the nature of faith and following Jesus Christ. Because we sometimes can have an unrealistic expectation that it's all kind of highs all the time, bang, 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 miracles every 25 minutes, prophetic words, great emotional highs when you come to church, but that's simply not true. We're not saved by how we feel. We're saved by who we believe in. And we're saved when we feel low and feel nothing as much as we're saved when we feel everything. And I think it's an important lesson about the nature of following Christ in this sinful, broken world and then what not to do when you have those low moments. So chapter 21 kind of acts as a reality check. The excitement of that first week after the resurrection where they had those dramatic appearances of Jesus has kind of stopped They've gone home, they've gone back to normal. Normal is so terrible, but we can't avoid it sometimes. But they go back home, seven of them have all gone together. There have been no more appearances of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And there's a real sadness to these disciples. You can sense a resignation. It's almost as if they're thinking, well, what do we do now? I'll go home and I'll go back to work It's kind of like the Monday morning feeling or the Sunday afternoon feeling at about five o'clock when you know you have to go to work on Monday morning. And the sense of sadness is captured in Peter when he announces seemingly out of the blue, I'm going out fishing. And they say, we'll go with you. And it's almost like, what do we do now? I don't know. Go to work? And they follow him onto the lake and they fish. They've slipped back into that old rhythm of life and they've let go of all that Christ commissioned them to be. 
He gave them a mission in chapter 20, don't forget. But it feels like it's gone a bit flat and the mission of God has been put aside and they've gone back to boring old nine to five. And isn't this the danger for every single one of us? I know so many Christians that when they first accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're full of passion and excitement. Maybe you can identify with it as well. At the beginning, you're like, yeah, you're going to change the world. Come on! Yeah, and then maybe you attend a members meeting or you get involved with some things and it all gets a bit dull. And it's not as exciting as you thought it was going to be, perhaps. We meet some other Christians that say, calm down, that's not what we do in this church. It all gets a bit boring, then bills start coming, and then work gets on the way, and then they suggest that you could go up in your career and things like that, and then you get locked down with mortgages and all that kind of stuff, or you get into a relationship, and that becomes more important than Jesus. And before you know it, the old rhythms of life have taken over from what should be a dynamic kingdom living of the coming kingdom of God. Seems to me that we all have a great opportunity at the moment. COVID-19 has been awful, of course, and we must pray for the rest of our world as we enjoy more freedom in this country. We must not forget places like India and Brazil and parts of Africa um, and other places, I suspect, that aren't making the news. But as awful as COVID has been, has it not thrown our routine out the window? And didn't we all celebrate at the very beginning of it, going, yeah, I'm never going back. Never am I going back. How many of you have already gone back to the life that you complained about before COVID-19? How many of us have already filled our diaries up with stuff that we don't even like? Stuff that stopped us being the people God called us to be. Don't rush back to the lives that we often complained about. COVID-19 has given us a pause, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take our diary and think, what do I want in it? No. What does God want in it? Do I fill it up with all the things that other people do and then leave a little space for Jesus? Am I going to put Jesus in first and then put the rest of my life around it? I wonder how many of us are going to be brave and take our empty diary and say, Lord Jesus Christ, there it is. You fill it up, not me. I'm never going back to what I was before. Because here's the truth, and I say this with love. The devil loves busy people. The devil loves busy people. Why? Because busy people never have enough time for God. Nothing wrong with being busy for the right things, by the way. I've read two quotes this week. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. And do not mistake activity for achievement. How many of us are ruled by our diaries? We don't long, no longer need to be. Put the things in that will make you the person God wants you to be. And then fit your life around that, not the other way around. And so we have this wonderful moment uh, where Jesus meets them on the shore. And, uh, and this encounter does three things uh, for his disciples. The first thing it does is it stops division. You'll notice that there should be 12 of them, or 11, but there will be 12 again. They replace Judas. But in verses 1 and 2, there's just seven disciples. The church was never meant to be, these early disciples were never meant to be fragmented. And so this encounter with Christ is going to bring all of these apostles back together again. As a church, we will never agree on everything, will we? As a group of Christians, we will always disagree with something. And we should never be so foolish as to think that church unity equals church agreement. Of course it doesn't. But unity is found when we come and we encounter Christ together as one people, even if we disagree with everything, things that might go on. The second thing that this encounter does is it restores their faith. Verse 12, they understand again who Jesus is, the living God. 
Many people, when they doubt their faith, ask lots of academic questions. There's nothing wrong with that. You should work through what you doubt. But you mustn't forget to encounter Christ at the same time. You need to pray. You need to worship. You need to encounter him for the ways he's let you. And that restores their faith. And number three, this encounter with Jesus recommissions them. At the very end, he says, follow me. Follow me. As in, back to Jerusalem, back to what you, where you should have been doing what you should have done. How many of us watching or this morning need to hear Jesus say, follow me? Why don't we go back to what I called you to when you were first a Christian? When you were 17 or 31 or 8? Let's go back to that because that's what you should have been doing. And you've let your diary rule and not let me rule. And it's the most beautiful way that Jesus encounters them. You may notice lots of shadows of the past. He does lots of things in this story that remind them of the past, uh, the past that's just happened. You'll note that this all happens on Lake Tiberias, which is Lake Galilee. That's where Jesus first called people like Peter in the first place in Luke chapter 5. Note the similarity when he called them the first time in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke. He said, fish the other side. And they had such a lot of fish they couldn't bring it in. The same thing happens here. He's reminding them of what happened before and who he is. And Peter gets it. And I love Peter's reaction in verse, Matthew now, in verse 7. It says, then, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. In a, the English standard version I've got, which is a bit more of a literal translation, it says he threw himself into the water. He's so pleased to see Jesus, he chucks himself into the water. When was the last time you threw yourself at God? But for Peter, it's about to get even more real. Because we discover, actually, that Peter is broken. He's rejected Jesus three times before he was tried um, with Herod and Pilate. Three times he was asked, do you know the man? Three times he said, I don't know him. He denies his Lord. Jesus asks him three questions. Do you love me more than these? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Three questions to counter his three denials. Even the coal that Jesus cooks the fish on reminds us of that night when he denied Jesus. John chapter 18, 18. And as he does that, he recommissions him and sends him out again, even hinting at the death Peter will face. But this is our Jesus, holy, loving, a gracious redeemer who calls us back and redefines our past and shapes our futures. I'm going to have to stop there, certainly. Um, well, it's done anyway. But I wonder this morning where you are. I wonder if you were once that really passionate Christian and somewhere along the line it's all got a bit confused. Maybe you've just got a bit bored with the I know things that happen at church. Maybe it's not what you thought it was going to be. Maybe you've become bogged down the routine of life. Are you a bit like those disciples on that boat, bobbing around in a career that you're not really sure you actually want, or a life that you're not sure God is calling you to? Maybe it's time to let go of the net. Maybe it's time to let go of the oars. Maybe it's time to look at who's on the horizon of your life, the shoreline. Who's calling you? He called them, and then he invited them. He fed them, and he commissioned them, and then he sent them out again. Maybe this morning Jesus is calling you. You've felt that in your heart. Maybe that's why you're here this morning or tuning in. Maybe you've felt that call to come and know him as your Lord and Savior. He's inviting you to have everlasting life. Not just attend, but to really know him. To give your life over, your sin and your brokenness, everything. To let him redeem all of it and make you brand new. 
He wants you to discover who you really are so that he can commission you and send you out into this broken world but with his strength and his life and his grace. He's standing on the shore just over there and he's calling you and you need to jump and throw yourself out of where you're currently stuck and embrace him with all of your might. And Lord willing, you'll do that this morning. Father, I pray for our church family, for those watching, Lord, those who attend other places, Lord, those who are not yet yours. Father God, maybe we're bobbing around in that boat of normality. Maybe our diaries have suddenly become king already. Maybe we've already broken our own solemn promise not to go back. So Lord Jesus, call us by name. Call us to jump out and swim to you. May you feed us and provide for us and commission us and call us and send us out. And Lord, I want to commit this service to you now and ask that you'll bless everything we've said for your glory and bless the service about to take place as well at 11 o'clock. Lord, be with us this week and may we, Lord, listen for your calling and be brave enough, Lord, to just jump in fully and ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.